trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where truth seekers come to revel in wrong think. To get a little more perspective, you're not going to get all the answers to life, okay? I'm not a smart guy. I'm not good looking. I'm, I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I, I'm not sure where I was going with this. But uh, anyway, if you're serious about uh, taking a good look at the world around us, I can offer you a slightly different perspective and hopefully something that helps you fill in the blanks and gain a little more complete picture than what you're likely to get through mainstream sources or even through some of the alternative media. Again, it's not that I have all the answers. I just, I have some information for your consideration. What you do with it, though, that's entirely up to you. So whatever biases I bring, and I do bring biases to the table, I'm trying to be as transparent about it up front so that you know that uh, it's it's really on you to decide what uh, what is right, what isn't, what uh, you can hang your hat on, and what you can't. Now contrast that with how much of our mainstream and legacy media operates, which is, oh, no, 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 we are the only voice of truth that you can trust. And then they spin, 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 and it's hard to know exactly, you know, what's going on. So I'm going to start today with a, a little bit of a, a reminiscence here. This is January 26th. Seven years ago today, Lavoie Finnicum was shot to death alongside a snowy Oregon highway. And I think about him a lot, even though it's been seven years. I think about the circumstances in which Lavoie Finnicum found his way into my life. And for some of you have heard this before, so I'm going to ask you, please bear with me. I know that uh, for a lot of people, this is this is going to be a new account. This is something that they haven't heard, but I feel very blessed that I had the privilege in the last year and a half or so of his life to get to know Lavoy Finnicum. And it was purely because he reached out to me. I think it was in the summer of 2015 that I received a letter at the radio station where I was working asking if I would like to interview a local author about his book. And, you know, I, I would get tons of, you know, notifications from authors who'd released books. And that's, this is part of the, you know, publicity and marketing. Hey, get on as many radio shows and television shows as you can. Get the word out there. And so I was a little skeptical at first. as okay, well, we got another guy here locally in southern Utah who's got a book that he'd like, you know, to be interviewed about. And my first instinct was to kind of, eh, I don't know if I'd really be interested. But then this author called me. And introduced himself, hey, this is LaVoy Finnicum, and I'm the author of this uh, book, Only by Blood and Suffering. And uh, I recognized, you know, having received the letter from him. But as we were talking, he said something about uh, he had been at Bundy Ranch on April 12th of 2014. And when I heard those words, I knew I needed to talk to this guy. How did I know that? Because I was at Bundy Ranch on April 12th, 2014, and had one of the most life-changing powerful experiences of my life as a result of being there. And so if he was there, I was like, I want to know what he has to say. So I invited him, come on in, come to the radio station. Let's talk. He brought me an autographed copy of his book and we sat and we talked. And from the very first time that I shook this cowboy's hand, I knew Lavoie Finnicum was a man of greatness. 
And I mean that in the sense that he didn't come in, you know, like some big ego and, you know, it's all about, look how great I am. There was just this authenticity about him and just a goodness that radiated from him. And as, as we would, would interview on the radio, one of the things I appreciated, I had him on my show a number of times. I think I had a total of nine hours of interviews that I did with him over the course of, uh, of the, from the time I met him until, until he was killed. And every time we would go on the air, Lavoie would ask, do you mind if we pray first? And, and I mentioned this not to, so you think, well, he must have been some religious nut. Then. This was a guy who understood that the message that he was sharing, which was the message of freedom, the message of liberty, was a message that was closely tied to his faith in God. Now, I realize not everybody believes in God, but for those people who understand what is meant when someone refers to the author of liberty. For those of us who are believers, that is God Almighty. It's the greatest gift that he could give his children. And there was a definite faith and love of God that came through loud and clear in everything about Lavoie. And I appreciated his ability to, to learn, to understand. He clearly had spent time studying and, and, and gaining knowledge and really learn, sussing it out for himself rather than just parroting, you know, somebody else's talking points. But I think what really left the most indelible impression on me about Lavoie was the enthusiasm with which he would speak up for liberty. Every single time that I talked with him, there was a happiness. There was, there was a positivity. And this, you know, you got to understand, in, in 2015, things were not great. We were under President Obama. There were many challenges. And life had, you know, th- th- there were many challenges to freedom, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But Lavoie was always positive about uh, what an honor it is to stand for liberty. And so many times he would remind me. In fact, I think every time we talked, he would say, remember, we were born for this time. And those words just kind of seared their way into my heart. Like, yes, I believe we were. And I felt a confidence as, as I heard him describe that. We were born for this time. What am I trying to say here? Okay, I'll just put my cards on the table. I think Lavoie was acknowledging a truth, which, which I try to acknowledge throughout this program. And it's simply this. I believe that to those of us who care deeply about matters like liberty, about truth, about freedom of conscience, about freedom of association, about private property rights, I believe that there is a spiritual component to those beliefs. And I be- beliefs rather, and I believe very sincerely that during times when these principles and, and the, the practices of liberty are under attack, I believe that God has placed us exactly where we are that we might be people to stand up and defend those things that are good and honorable. In other words, it's not an accident that, that you actually care about this stuff. So I had Lavoie on my program several times over the next few months and uh, got to know him, learned about, uh, you know, he, he basically came to this, this uh, sense of, I can't continue to play the game of asking permission from the government, can I please, you know, run my cattle and, and operate my ranch by your permission. And it wasn't that he had a bad relationship with his range comms, you know, with his the BLM uh, personnel that he worked with. Quite contrary, they loved him. They thought he was a pretty good guy. But he said, you know, I'm, I'm allowing my rights to be taken from me and converted into privileges. And so he fired the BLM, said, I will take responsibility 
for for uh, managing my grazing allotment. I'll pay, you know, a tax to my county since it's their land that I'm using. And I had him on the show several times over that time. And within January of 2016 came and uh, Ammon Bundy, along with Lavoie and several others, occupied the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. Now, I was pretty shocked when that happened, but, you know, I, I had the luxury of being able to go to the source, and I had Lavoie on the program several times. I was shocked when, during the middle of that occupation, see, it wasn't a standoff. If it was a standoff, he and Ryan Bundy would not have been able to hop in a truck and drive all the way from Oregon down to Cedar City, Utah, but he did. He surprised me. And I had him on my radio show, and he gave a very powerful you know, defensive. This is why we are doing what we're doing. He pleaded with people, stand up for what is right. Find the courage to stand up and to support those who are trying to, to preserve freedom against almost impossible odds. Later that night, we met with a number of friends and some area ranchers. And um, again, just what a great experience to hang with Lavoie. I gave him a hug as he was getting ready to leave. He was very anxious to get back to the refuge. And I felt finality in that hug. I didn't want to admit it at the time, but it was like, oh, I told him, please be careful. Please come back. And then on January 26th of 2016, my friend was shot to death in an ambush set up by frightened men acting under the color of law. Over the next few weeks, I had a number of people, four to be exact, who came to me and in in the process of talking with me and comforting me, said the words, remember, you were born for this time. I remember the first couple of times I heard that, it was like, wow, it's good to hear that. By the third time I heard that phrase, I was like, is the universe trying to send me a message of reassurance? And by the fourth time, I knew that's exactly what is happening here. So I'm taking this first segment of the show today just to to pay honor to Lavoie Finnicum. I have no doubt that though his earthly journey ended there on that snowy roadside, that his spirit lives on. I'm convinced that he is still very much a part of the fight for freedom because it's a part of an eternal battle between light and darkness. And I'm sure that there's going to come a day where I'm going to be able to shake his hand and maybe recognize exactly how much he is still actively at work and has been all along. So God bless him, God bless his family until the time that they're reunited. And hopefully now you know just a little bit more about a guy who has been horribly misrepresented by most of mainstream media. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you for indulging me as I spend a little bit of time uh, memorializing Lavoie Finnicum. I understand for some people, there there are some people who still to this day, you know, uh, they, they celebrate. They're just gleeful. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness that man was eradicated from the earth, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, I seriously doubt that any of them knew him personally. But uh, for those who did, you know what a great man he was. Maybe keep his uh, family in your prayers today. Got a couple other things I'd like to share with you today. And I'm, uh, part of this is going to be, you know, hey, this is good and encouraging. One of these is going to raise your blood pressure. I'll probably save that one for last. I want to uh, recognize 
the brave souls who are willing to stand for what they believe, even if it comes at a price. And recently, we had an example of this, not nearly as dramatic as someone, you know, losing their life, but nonetheless, a very courageous stand made by Ivan Provorov. Now, he's a professional hockey player, and uh, he is one who refused to bend the knee to the alphabet mafia, LGBTQ+. I want to share with you the story about uh, why he refused to, to don a rainbow-colored practice jersey along with the rest of his hockey team. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Stephen Whitney. Ivan Provorov stands fast in his faith is the title of the article. And yes, it's in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. <clears throat> so a week ago Tuesday, the Philadelphia Flyers, a hockey team, participated in an LGBTQ plus Pride Night event. The team, with one exception, donned rainbow-colored jerseys as they warmed up before the game. Defenseman Ivan Provorov opted out, saying, I respect everybody and I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. Now, Provorov, an Orthodox Christian, has come under immense fire as a result. But his decision to stand for his beliefs was a righteous one. And it stems from the idea that Christians should not be coerced into celebrating LGBT ideology. Now, to its credit, the National Hockey League defended Provorov's decision. A statement from the organization said, Players are free to decide which initiatives to support, and we continue to encourage their voices and perspectives on social and cultural issues. Flyers head coach John Torotella, I'm sorry, John Tortorella, defended his players' decision as well, saying with Provy, he's being true to himself and to his religion. This has to do with his belief in his religion. It's one thing I respect about Provy. He's always true to himself. The media, on the other hand, is less supportive. NHL Network's E.J. Raddick suggested the Flyers defenseman should go back to Russia, his homeland, and get involved with the Russia-Ukraine war. Kind of nasty, huh? And we all know Raddick wouldn't have said that if he were, if uh, Provorov were, say, from Somalia. Pierre Lebrun... Senior NHL columnist for The Athletic told his nearly 836,000 Twitter followers that Provorov obviously does not respect everyone. If he did respect everyone, he would have taken part in the warm-up and worn the Pride Night jersey. Don't hide behind religion. But did Provorov hide behind his religion? Or was he living in accordance with his Christian values? Stephen Whitney says, look, to be clear, God calls us to be kind and loving. There is no commandment greater than to love God and love thy neighbor. Yet he also demands that we respect his word, and on the subject of sex, God's word is crystal clear. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Christ hearkens back to Genesis and affirms the biblical account of creation. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. So not only did God create two sexes, not the 72 genders that people identify as these days, he also specifically established marriage as a union between a man and a woman. Now, many Bible verses have historically been interpreted differently by different groups and individuals, but this is not one. Virtually every Christian denomination until very recently understood that gay marriage and transgenderism are at odds with God's will for humanity. As such, Ivan Provorov's refusal to participate in Pride Night was the Christian thing to do. 
donning the pride jersey would have affirmed an agenda at odds with God. So Stephen Whitney says we should praise his heroism. After all, having the wrong views in today's society carries quite the cost, as the media backlash has proved. But it seems that uh, others do support Provorov's decision to stand for his values. For instance, after all the media backlash and attention, his jersey sold out online of every size except extra small. So to live in this world, says Stephen Whitney, is to face temptation. But he says as disciples of Jesus Christ, we're called to resist the worldly forces which attempt to lead us astray. Provorov did just that. Bravo. I think it's a good example of, of courage to stand up and, and to be true, knowing that you're likely to pay a price. Yeah, the easier thing to do would have been just put on the jersey, keep your mouth shut, and skate around there and warm up with the rest of your teammates. I'm still trying to figure out how the NHL suddenly became, you know, a vector for, you know, LGBT pride, you know. And, uh, but uh, what the heck? You know, most people go there to see the fights, not to see a bunch of rainbow flags skating around or, you know, transsexuals hanging off the Zamboni as it's, as it's uh, you know, preparing the ice for the game. But I think there's a larger lesson here for each one of us. And I don't know what form your lesson or my lesson is going to take. But I'm pretty certain that all of us will find ourselves at a crossroad of some sort. Where the way that society is going or what is acceptable to society, what the crowd is doing, is going to require us to either abandon our principles or to hold fast to them. I mean, come on, we've already seen this in so many ways. This is just one example of many, okay? It's not, not everything is about, you know, the, the rainbow or alphabet mafia. And most of the time, you're not going to make headlines like Provorov did. Sometimes it's just going to be a simple matter of uh, saying, no, I don't think I can support that. Or just simply, no, thank you. Now, notice he didn't go on the offensive, right? He didn't. Uh, he didn't start off. He he didn't go on. A, what was the what was the guy's name? Um, ah, the baseball player who was was complaining about. Yeah, you never know if you're going to be riding next to one of these queers on you know the subway or something. Uh, you know that was okay. That was pretty a pretty offensive way to state his opinion. He's entitled to his opinion, but that there there are good ways and bad ways to say such things. Provorov, I think, did it as as gently but as clearly as possible. Nope. He says, I can respect everybody's uh, choices. I respect everybody, but my choice is to stay true to myself and to my religion. And when people say, well, that's hate. Sorry, that's, that's just a, that's a rhetorical temper tantrum being thrown by a child because you won't bend the knee. You won't admit that I'm right. You won't chant in unison with me. And it seems like that would be pretty easy to spot, right? It seems like it'd be easy enough to resist and, and to, uh, to, to not have to, to feel like you were going to give in. But when the pressure is on, when people are, you know, calling for harm to you or otherwise suggesting bad things should happen to you because, you know, you don't agree with this particular agenda, it gets tough. Maybe they attack your family. Maybe they, they call your employer. They're trying to get you fired or canceled or whatever. I can't remember. I think it was, uh, I think it was uh, um, an LDS apostle by the name of Neil A. Maxwell who talked about how the more a person commits to their relationship specifically with Christ, but I think this, this is true for anybody who really makes a commitment to, to get right with God, the more likely they are to have 
what he called public relations problems. I think that's a, that's a natural part of living in this world. Opposition comes when you are trying to do the right thing. So what is it that makes a person able to stand up to that, obst- op- that opposition or at least to withstand the pressure that comes as a result of receiving opposition? You know, I think it's going to look different for each one of us, but if you wait until the moment of choice to decide, well, what will I do? Chances are you're going to take the easier path. I think it's a matter of preparing yourself daily, doing the little things, being true to yourself in small things, and then when you're called upon to be true to yourself in some great thing, you will be prepared. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, please just go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes. Doesn't matter, any one of them. Down at the bottom of the page, you're going to see a subscribe button. Click on that, and you'll be well on your way to getting a daily dose, Monday through Friday, of uh, the best articles and best insights that I can find to uh, help shed insight on the world around us. And I, I don't always just look for the gloom and doom. I look for things that will hopefully help you better understand not only what's happening, but what you can do to make a difference. So here's one of the more interesting articles that I've come across recently. And it kind of comes back to, you've heard the refrain, well, who will build the roads? If it weren't for government, who would build the roads? I like how Tom Woods puts it. Oh, yes, with without government, why we would build homes and businesses and we would build cities, but then just sit there looking at each other from afar going, how do I get there? <laughs> because nobody would figure it out. Yeah, hardly. But this article by Thomas Walker Worth explains how government road building build, I'm sorry, road building, <laughs> that was an interesting uh, slip there, government road building killed innovation in transportation. He says for thousands of years, the main way people traveled was by foot or horse, restricted to low speeds along rough paths along the land. The wave of innovations that followed the Industrial Revolution changed all that. In the 18th century, new canals carried, enabled heavy, heavy freight rather to be moved more easily. In the 19th century, railways enabled the movement of larger numbers of people and heavier freight at much higher speeds. Then came oil-powered vehicles such as trucks and cars, enabling point-to-point private transportation, reaching places away from the rail network. At the start of the 20th century, the Wright brothers invented the aeroplane, which made long-distance travel faster than ever before, especially once jet-powered airliners followed in the 1940s. Then something changed. Almost 80 years have passed since the end of World War II. And yet we're still using the same dominant modes of transportation we were using in 1945. When J. Storrs Hall asked, where is my flying car? He shone light on an important but overlooked fact. There have been no major innovations in transportation since the jet engine. So the question he asked is, what changed? Well, in short, the government took sides in the competition between modes of transportation. Following a model established by Nazi Germany with its Autobahn system, Western governments piled billions upon billions of dollars into new national highway systems in the mid-20th century. Previously, in freer countries such as Britain and the U.S., private companies had built railways and canals based on predictions of profitable traffic. 
Some availed of government power in, attend, in obtaining land and government sometimes directed where routes could and couldn't go. But the driving force was anticipated demand. Now, conversely, the new government-planned road networks could go wherever the politicians wanted them. They did not need to prove their worth in future revenue. Governments used their power to appropriate property, tearing through poor inner-city districts and cutting across the countryside, destroying homes and businesses. The cost of construction was enormous. The estimated bill for the main interstate highway system in the U.S. was $535 billion in 2020 dollars. But he says the result was a distortion of the market. A first-class road network now existed that simply would not have been there through natural market forces. Any car owner or bus operator could use it. At the same time, governments built airports, whether there was an economic case for them or not, which any airline could use. And the result has been a massive disincentivization of further innovation. Why invent a new type of high-speed railway when there's a fast road to every city? Why invent a new kind of local air travel, or for that matter, a flying car, when five-lane highways go right into the center of the city? Why invent ways to make airports faster, more customer-friendly, and easier to get to? When the government airports get funded regardless, and airlines have no realistic alternative but to use them. Thomas Walker Worth says, It's bittersweet to imagine the kind of world we could have now if governments had stayed out of the transportation industry. Imagine privately run bullet trains linking cities in a fraction of the driving time, a flying car on every roof, and helicopter shuttles from the heart of downtown to the airport tarmac <clears throat> for seamless transfer to the plane. One can imagine getting off the helicopter shuttle to board a supersonic jet that'll cross the ocean within an hour, with no time-consuming waiting at the terminal and no brusque, offensive, government-employed security agents. This is the world governments stole from us. And he asks but is it too late to get it back? Privatizing road networks immediately would be an excellent start. Right now, transport planners are engaged in a fierce debate over whether the government should be pro or anti-cars or pro or anti-trains. And his response is it should be none of these. Private roads would benefit everyone. Where there's sufficient demand, road operators would create new kinds of roads designed to be faster and safer than any road today yet cheaper to use than the cost of the various taxes governments currently extort from motorists. Where there isn't enough demand, roads would close, letting rail lines, dedicated busways, or other novel solutions take over. Maybe an opponent of privatization might fear. Road operators would decide that their roads would make money as development land, close them all down, cover them with housing. Well, why not? All that would do is drive up the incentive for somebody to invent or provide a better way of getting from A to B not to mention a ton of new places for people to live, all built on previously developed land. So whenever governments interfere with markets, the result is less innovation and poorer services. Unlike a private company, the government can use the law to force its idea, force through its ideas, rather. A private company has to respond to the reality of what people need. If we want to get back to innovating new ways for people to get around and realize all the benefits that could have that could have for people's quality of life, it's long past time to privatize the roads. I know some people, ah, but everybody will be charging us. But imagine if you privatize the roads, suddenly the government doesn't need your gas tax, which should take, I think, uh, I don't know, what are we up to now? About 40, 50, maybe more cents a gallon. Something to think about. I think that the innovation, though, is the key. 
How many kinds of ways could, could there be innovation if government wasn't standing in the way? Just a little something to think about. By the way, I'm also including an article in today's show notes. Uh, this one is kind of a nice throwback from the Foundation for Economic Education. Jen Mafasanti wrote this back in March of 2020. It's titled Customer Sovereignty, When Customers Have the Power. And this is another wonderful defense of the free market. What makes the free market such a great bet? Well, the best part, of, or to me, one of the biggest selling points of the free market is people are free to take their business elsewhere. Nobody's going to point a gun at you and say, oh, no, you're going to buy this shirt in this color or else. If it's not something you want, you don't have to buy it. You can go somewhere else. So she says, you've certainly heard and probably strongly disagreed with the phrase, the customer is always right. And Jen says, I get it. Sometimes a customer is factually, provably incorrect. If you've ever worked in a customer-facing job, you've encountered at least one of those customers. She says, I know I have. But the principle of the customer always being right isn't meant to be taken literally. It doesn't mean that any individual customer is in all cases actually correct. More than anything, the customer is always right is meant as a reminder of who is actually in charge of a business. Now, she says it's easy to think that, or to fall into the trap of thinking that we, the lowly consumers, really have no say in what goods are produced or what services are offered. We're often told bigwig CEOs and business owners have so much power over us and our lives. But Jen Mafasadi says the truth of it is that we, the consumers, are the ones with all the power. Here in the U.S., we enjoy a largely free market economy. That means commercial exchanges, the buying and selling of goods and services, are voluntary. Yes, there are certain regulations, restrictions, requirements, and limits. No, it isn't a pure free market economy, but it's reasonably close. And goods, the goods and services that we have available for purchase are optional. Now, she says, when I say optional, I mean no person or entity is hovering over us saying, for example, you have to purchase Ivory brand soap. If you go to the pharmacy on the corner, you're going to find at least a dozen brands of soap available. Bar soap, gel soap, lotion soap, liquid foaming soap, soap for hands, soap for faces, soap for bodies, soap for deep cleansing, soap for sensitive skin, moisturizing soap, exfoliating soap. The list goes on. Why does it matter that we can choose which brand and form factor of soap we want? Well, the answer is because each of us is different. We have different priorities, preferences, and needs. If we as consumers, the people who buy and use the final product, don't want or don't like any of those soaps, we don't have to buy them. We can buy the soap we do want. Or we can go to a different store that offers, offers soap, soap options rather that we like more. The producers who make the soap that best serve the needs and preferences of the most people, they're the ones who will prosper. And the producers who fail to serve enough people will lose money. But her point is which producers make money and which lose money is entirely in our hands as consumers. Kind of a neat reminder. You have the power to cause businesses to change or even close completely because you are free to choose a different provider if what they're offering isn't working out for you. Now contrast that with government which is kind of like the squeegee man in the inner city who comes up and washes your windshield whether you want it or not and then angrily demands payment and threatens violence if you don't cough up the money. I know which route I would rather take. More free market and less government. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And, and thank you for hanging with me. I get it. You know, what I talk about, what I'm sharing is not for everybody. But if you're one of those brave souls who has hung with me so far, okay, brace yourself. I've got something to share with you. This is going to make law and order types a little bit uncomfortable, but I think it addresses a truth that that probably needs to be addressed and spoken to. And I I have to tip my hat to the wonderful Jeffrey Tucker. This was actually written back in 2015. It's called How to Steal 75000 from the Poor in One Day's Work. His point is traffic court is a tax collection scheme masked as justice. He says the new liberality concerning marijuana possession in the United States is long overdue, but let's not exaggerate how much progress we've made. Users might not be ending up ending up in jail as frequently as they did 10 years ago. Remember, this was written in 2015. But he says cops, judges, and courts still exercise arbitrary power to ruin people's lives. And they do so at astonishing rates all over the country. He says, I recently saw this firsthand. I sat in a municipal traffic court from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. awaiting my own time with a judge for a petty moving violation. Now, he says, I was there with 150 other people gathering cobwebs as the judge took his sweet time and shamed people as they stood at the bench and humbly submitted to his rule. No phones or computers are allowed in court. He says, my iPad was not allowed either. Once you enter through the metal detector, you are trapped for the duration. There is no contacting anyone. For most people today, this would be the only time in their lives when such contact is forbidden. This rule contributes to the feeling of being controlled by and subjected to power. You just have to wait your turn, even if it takes eight hours. So there we sat. Now he points out, not one person in this courtroom had harmed anyone. Not one. They had not stolen anything, they had not mugged anyone, they had not caused any car wrecks, and yet there they were, facing torment at the hands of a judge drunk on power and a criminal justice system that's out of control. He says, most of my fellow criminals were poor, young black men who'd been stopped for some traffic violation and then booked for a different, unrelated offense. Why the lopsided demographics? Why were these people targeted? Well, it would be hard to prove, but he says it does seem likely that they they were targeted. The supposed crimes called out by the judge were all over the map. Too much tinting on the windows. The license plate light was burned out. The vehicle was following too closely. The driver was speeding, of course. The the car had expired tags. The driver wasn't carrying proof of active insurance and so on. Each person was fined between $500 and $3,000, always on a plea bargain. They admitted guilt for something in exchange for paying a reduced fine. For example, he says the judge dismissed my one charge, not complying with the move-over rule, which requires a driver to switch lanes away from a patrol car on the shoulder, a rule which at that time he didn't even know existed. But he ended up having to admit guilt for something that wasn't even true, driving without his license. In fact, Jeffrey says, I did have my license, so the form I signed was a lie that the judge had me tell. By what understanding of justice does the court blackmail you to admit to crimes you didn't? commit. Now, again, keeping in mind, this was 2015. He says, fully one third of these people had been dragged in for pot possession. In the typical scenario, a cop would stop a car on a rural stretch for some minor moving violation. The cop would then claim to smell pot, which constitutes probable cause and initiate a thorough search of the car. Then the cop would find a pipe or some pot, arrest the person, then issue a few other tickets in addition for things like no proof of insurance or a burnt out taillight and so on. But it was the pot charge that landed these drivers in front of the judge. 
Repeatedly, the judge reminded the accused, we are not in Colorado. In the state of Georgia, your offense carries with it a 12-month prison sentence. The judge then said he would not send the person to jail. He dismissed a few other charges, thereby positioning himself as a merciful public servant. He was then in a position to get any of these poor souls to admit guilt for anything as long as they would get a lesser sentence. Now, Jeffrey Tucker points out everyone was fined, but some punishments went further. The pot criminals were were required to do 50 to 100 hours of community service, taking away time from school, work, and family. They now have to attend classes on the dangers of drugs. Jeffrey says, I'm sure those work. They must also submit to six months of drug testing to make sure they are not consuming this dangerous substance. And they prove this by sending in urine samples. He says, now I understand why there's such a burgeoning market for synthetic urine. Oh, and they also get a criminal record. Then there's the fine. Most people could not pay hundreds or thousands of dollars on the spot. The judge gave them one month to cough up the money. Where are these poor people going to get that kind of money? One solution that immediately occurred to Jeffrey Tucker was he said, well, they could get into the drug business temporarily. Another option, steal the money. How much crime, he asked, is being brought about through these fines? Then there were DUI charges, which carried stiffer penalties, including suspension of licenses. Probably one-third of the people were there to deal with that problem. Now, again, there was no evidence in the courtroom that middle-class white people have ever gotten behind the wheel after consuming too much alcohol. But he says the courtroom gave him a strong impression that the only drunk drivers are young black men. So stuck in this room for eight-plus hours without a computer or other reading material, he says, the only thing I could do was count the fines. And he says, I came up with an estimate of estimate of $75,000 collected on that one day. And the judge was brazen about it all. He kept asking each person, when are you going to pay me? Despite this appalling display, everyone treated the judge as some kind of great man. Court employees laughed uproariously at his terrible jokes, nodded in solemn agreement when he would moralize about pot, and complied with his every demand, or command, rather. I think he believed he was doing good for the community, based on the many ways in which he congratulated himself on his dedicated work. But the point here that Jeffrey Tucker is making is this whole system is clearly a tax collection scheme marked as justice. Again, I know that's going to make some people kind of feel rankled. What? (laughs) How can you say this? But (laughs) this court wanted money. And the people that it squeezed were the ones who were least able to pay. In the end, that's what he saw. In fact, he says, what I saw rivaled the worst forms of petty tyrannies I've read about in history books. How tyrannical kings would use every trick to pillage the population of their meager resources. He says, I very much doubt that there is anything unusual about what I saw. It probably goes on every day in your town, too. His point is simply this. Not one person in that room needed to be mixed up with the court system. None of the money and time they gave up deserved to be taken. A true dispenser of justice would have flung open the doors and set the captives free, but instead, they were subjected to an excruciating, pillaging, and humiliating system that barely masks its true nature. And he says, and we wonder why so many people are unhappy with the system. Now, look, I understand. For some people, it's like, well, you know, pot's bad for you. And, and people who speed or people who have too dark of tint, well, they're breaking the laws. And, and, and this, like I said, the law and order types are, are the ones most likely to really get offended by this. But I wonder sometimes if we have dulled our ability to distinguish between 
law and legislation. And it's a difference worth understanding. Laws typically reflect traditions and values that, that have stood the test of time. But it's, it's not just some arbitrary thing. Yes, you know, there shall be no dancing in this town. Usually it's, it's something that, uh, that goes back and, and is in the, in the interest of fairness. People have supported it historically because it just made sense. If a person harms another person in this way, this is the thing that needs to happen. This is what will restore or at least exact justice, fairness for the damage that's done. Legislation, on the other hand, is essentially politicians' words on paper. And, and without going to law school or even being a jailhouse lawyer, you can understand there are two different categories of laws, mala and say, in which an act is evil on its face. This would be anything that causes a clear victim. Rape, robbery, murder, fraud, arson. Those are all mala and say acts. Someone who does that has harmed another individual. Then there's mala prohibita, which again, politicians' words on paper. You shall not flush with more than 1.5 gallons of water. You know, under penalty of law. It's not that it's an evil act, it's just simply it's a prohibited act. But again, we kind of forget, you know, what, uh, what is what. And, and we, we've even seen this shift in terms of, of our policing. Once upon a time, the police were known as peace officers. Basically, their job was to keep the peace. Which meant that, yes, there were laws that had to be upheld, there were laws that had to be enforced... But they weren't mere enforcers, which today everything is law enforcement, and and enforcement is where the emphasis is. The thing you have to remember is there is no law, there is no statute, there is no ordinance that is so minor that an enforcer will not kill you in order to enforce it. Now, I know that sounds like an extreme thing to say, but I'm saying if you spit on the sidewalk and then refuse to submit to an enforcer who tries to write you the ticket or otherwise uh, hold you accountable for it, they will use escalating levels of force to bring you into compliance. And if you resist enough, it will end with your dead body laying there on the sidewalk. So I guess we need to use the power of the state carefully, judiciously, and certainly never to plunder other people. This is The Brian Hyde Show.